Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumphs, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin our A Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, beginning episode 73 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So I started today with an appointment to my foot doctor and my little glommy toe is fine. We had so much fun in my appointment. So I go to a foot doctor, he's a surgeon, he's not a podiatrist, he's an orthopedic surgeon. We got talking about those websites that you can, you know, sign up and take pictures of your feet and make money. Apparently people with beautiful feet make money, but I heard that people with glommy feet make money. And so I think I might, you know, begin an account that's called Baby Got Bunions or something like that. (laughs) We'll see what's available. It just makes me laugh, kind of, that, you know, people will pay for pretty extreme things. But what was funny is we got talking about all the nasty feet. And I have that video I posted of that big metal pin being pulled out of my toes. That was either well-received or not well-received. But it just made me laugh. And we came up with all these funny names. And then we thought that My foot surgeon should have one and he could just get consent from his patients to post pictures of their feet and it could be called the agony of defeat. So only old people will know what that's from. When I was growing up every Saturday, ABC had the wide world of sports and there was a beginning of it. And part of it was narrated and it said the thrill of victory and it showed people winning races and diving into water and stuff. And then the agony of defeat and it was a skier, a ski jumper that like crashes terribly. Anyway, it just made me laugh. So I'm just sharing that right now because it's a fun little uplifting way to start. The third episode of what is a pretty difficult season. And here's why it's difficult. It's not just difficult for me to remember these things with hindsight. It's also very, very challenging to share it in a way that doesn't sound like I'm just airing dirty laundry. I mean, I guess I am, but my generation grew up being told you don't air your dirty laundry, you just carry it around. And what I have noticed in our current society and the push for equitable, equitable treatment of everybody, not equality, equity, very two different things, is that we have to begin to share our journeys. Now, some people are private, but they can get support and share their journeys through other people sharing their journeys, if that makes sense. The amount of feedback and support I get from a lot of what I talk about is significant enough that, that I'll continue to do it. And also, as we increase our ability to communicate with one another, you know, it's, it's one of those things where the more we can do online, the less we do in person. So are we really getting closer or are we getting further apart? What I will say is, is information is a fingertip away or, a, you know, I'm not going to say the words because my phone will answer me, but I can ask my phone anything and get an answer almost right away. In sharing this story, I will constantly strive to take ownership in the pieces that were mine. And I will share the adverse behaviors and the things that happened to me in as gentle a way as possible. But it's not my job to carry around the bad things that have happened to me so that the people that did them are somehow protected or can somehow turn around and do it to other people. In resharing my stories and rethinking all that happened to me from the note in the backpack until me sitting in this little room today, is that I often just freeze. I don't fight for myself. I don't stand up for myself. And I back down. And of course, for someone looking to manipulate or, you know, abuse somebody, I'm the perfect person because I'm wishy-washy and I'm I'm a sap and I put things down and A good example right now is my mom just messaged me and she's got some big issues with my dad and money and financial stuff. And can you come over and can you talk? And I was all ready to just pick up the phone. And I realized, no, 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 this is not okay at all. 
this is not what I had planned for today. And so I've made some arrangements for later, but it is very difficult for me to not just respond to somebody when they ask me for help. And when you have a person in your life that looks for 250% commitment in a way that's incredibly unhealthy, they're going to look for somebody that will do it and not feel like it's unhealthy. I guess that's the best way for me to share this. This episode I call Taking a Step Back. So I had begun my friendship with Amy in November of 2005. So now we're going into the school year 07-08. So Gracie and Morgan would be first graders and Molly would be a second year of preschool. This was the school year that really, really sort of gave me pause. So I'm going to start out first by sort of going over the last couple of years of what was going on with me. Kenny and I were having a lot of struggles. So when I say that the 2005 summer was my last happy time, that was before I knew a lot of what was going on in Kenny's business. And so I believe it was the following year, 06, the summer of 06, where I went to the bank because we needed a new roof. And I had been coaching three seasons a year for several years and had about $30,000 saved up for a roof. And I went to the bank to check the balance and it was zero. And I thought something bad had happened. And so I was directed to the bank manager who told me the IRS had levied it. So I came home, like, I want the money back. I need the money back. I want the money back now. It was horrifyingly bad. And that was sort of the beginning of really troubling times for Kenny and me because his poor business practices were now affecting my life. I worked, I coached three seasons a year for four years to pay Kenny's tax debt. Like, I, I don't think that's right. <laughs> it's still not right. It still irks me today. We were starting to fall apart. So my home life was beginning to have struggles in it that didn't happen before. Amy loved to be a helper. And so if I shared anything with her, she jumped right in to be of assistance, moral support. She'd send me a card. You know, I have a box somewhere of cards from her. Very, very kind things. But what she would do later is take that incident and use it against me or against Kenny or against whoever was the perpetrator or the sufferer of that particular transgression. So anything I share with her, I'm quite sure this whole podcast season will be very, very manipulated and changed by Amy and Roy both in their regular conversations. I think they work hard to manipulate the truth. That's just my opinion. That was something that started to happen sort of in Gracie's kindergarten year and the summer after kindergarten. So heading into first grade, I was not happy and I had been unhappy. I'd been unhappy since the miscarriage and not trying for a third child. And when I look back on it now, I feel like had we tried for the third child, I wouldn't have been available for the note in the backpack, you know, and, and a lot of these things wouldn't have happened because I would have been busy growing a baby and busy doing other things. And it wouldn't, it just wouldn't have had the same dynamic because I would have been pregnant and growing a baby and having a baby. And so I wouldn't have been as available to Amy as I was. The summer after kindergarten, going into first grade, we went on vacation and we always went to the Jersey Shore. So it would be Kenny, me, Gracie and Molly. And cell phones were be becoming a much bigger thing. Like I actually had gone from my big giant purchased in 1998 cell phone in a case the size of calculator to flip phones and those sorts of things. Those were all coming into play. And more and more people were using cell phones. So I had a cell phone on vacation with me. I still wasn't a regular user of the cell phone. It wasn't really until a couple of years later, maybe 09 and, and 10, when things really got heated up with Roy, that I really started to rely on my cell phone. But we went on vacation. It was June. So it would have been June of 2007. And I got several phone calls from Amy and I was on vacation. And that was a time when I really felt like, you know, this is my vacation. This is my time. I don't want phone calls from home. In her defense, she was really struggling. She had 
I think she had had sprained her ankle or she had, she had done something and needed moral support. And not surprisingly, I was really her only super close friend. She may have other opinions about that now or descriptions of her life back then, but I do know at the time I was her go-to person. And so I know Kenny got really frustrated with me and, and I just said, look, I'll see you when I get home. I'm on vacation. I don't want to think about home. But she took great offense to me lumping her into home. We were friends and we should talk every day, even if I was on vacation. Now, keep in mind, this is a person that went away for a three-day trip with Roy to Newport or someplace and never once called or received calls or anything. So it was never a two-way street with Amy. She wanted complete access to me 100% of the time, but had no trouble telling me when access to her was not available or just ignoring me. That always, just like my desire to have a break from the friendship over vacation, have a break from everything, hurt her feelings. This hurt my feelings. It wasn't a red flag so much as a feeling hurter. It didn't take me out of the friendship. Mostly it made me think, how can we fix it? Because that's just me. I always want to try to fix these things. Another thing that had happened during Gracie's kindergarten year was that I applied for a sabbatical in the school district. And I was starting to have this, this feeling of unrest in my life in general. Like, is this all there is? And boy, let me tell you what I wouldn't go back to 2005 and just have all this. But I wanted to do something different, bigger in my career. I, I wasn't super comfortable just being a 30-year school teacher. Now it's what I ache for to have given 30 years to a school district. So it's interesting how life changes our perspective and what we want. But I applied for a sabbatical and it was a terrible application. And I sat in front of the school board and it was relatively humiliating. I remember Betty Holdley sort of really giving me trash about it and not getting it. And I didn't deserve it. It wasn't organized enough. But I sat with Chris Rath, who was a big supporter of mine at the time, and she explained what needed to happen for a better proposal for a sabbatical. And so over the summer, heading into first grade for Gracie and Morgan, so the summer of 2007, I worked very hard on a sabbatical proposal. So this was something else that took a lot of time. I worked on it at school, but I really worked on it over the summer. I would go into school to work on it because there wasn't Wi-Fi then. You still had to be logged in. You had to travel. If I wanted to be on the school server, I had to go to school. So I got it done. But I remember this was a bit of a contentious thing because it took time away from when we would be together. Another thing that started to happen over that summer was Amy's increasing interest and participation in timing road races. This was something we initially did together. We ran and timed road races together. And I've said it before, it was a wonderful, a wonderful experience. I really, really enjoyed it. And our race company owner, Bob, was always looking for people to work because this was way pre-pandemic and just when Granite State Race Services, which is what I worked for, was much bigger. So those were some, you know, sort of typical things that made the friendship the same. Going into first grade, and I'm looking over to my right here because I've taken notes because I want to get all this right. Some of the things that had happened with Kenny and I leading up to this year were, you know, I talked about how I had refinanced this home and my Albin Street home when I was pregnant with Molly. And we went from these very, very manageable 15-year mortgages to overinflated 30-year mortgages so Kenny could have money for his business. And this was about the time that he took out a loan to repay debt and didn't pay me back. And he had promised that when he took out a loan, the money I had lent him, $80,000, would be paid back to me. And it was not. And this was troubling. He started to feel like money was being misappropriated or taken at his job. But this isn't anything I really knew the full brunt of. Kenny is a dill pickle. When things get tough, he jumps back into the pickle jar and pulls the lid over his head. You know, when he's in a pickle, he doesn't do anything. He pulls the jar closed. And so I found out a lot of these things from 
other people in my life. So another thing that happened at this time was my good friend, Dave, who I ran with all the time in the mornings prior to knowing Amy. And maybe afterwards, we ran together a lot after coming up, but he had suffered a job loss and I encouraged Kenny to hire him. So here I am. I have these two major families in my life and I'm pleading with one boss to hire Amy and I'm pleading with another boss who's Kenny to hire Dave. And so both of these things happen. In my effort to pull away from one friendship and to cultivate and save another, I'm pulling these people and their issues into my life. This can create, you know, now their problems are my problems. We suffered some big tax hits because Kenny owed a lot of taxes. And that's why why all my coaching money kept getting taken away. It was this summer that the second round of of money came out of my, my bank. I was working track camp. It was 2007. And Kenny shows up at track camp and he's like, it happened again. I'm like, what happened again? the IRS took money, which means Kenny had changed nothing. He promised he would fix all this. And obviously nothing was fixed because they took my money. Now, in his defense, I didn't take his name off of that account. It was just a joint account. All of our accounts were joint. And at that time, it did. It just didn't dawn on me. I had never been in this boat before. I was a trusting, loving wife at the time. And so he said, I'll get it back. I'll get it back. And so he did. The money was put back into my account. He was assigned an agent. And the IRS put money back into my account, but then they put liens on our home, this house that I'm sitting in. And some of these liens still exist. So if I want to refinance, if I want to borrow against this house, if I even want to just use it as collateral, like in a loan against something else, I can't until those liens are paid off. So, you know, it's still to this day, all these years later, hamstrings us financially. It's very, very frustrating. All of this was just beginning to happen. Coaching was a struggle. I had big teams with wonderful girls, but our high level of competition had dwindled. I had a very, very unique new group of runners that I couldn't really understand their motivation. I had a couple of upperclassmen that were not nice. And so when you have somebody that's not nice and they're in a position of upperclassmen power on a team, it's a losing battle. Cross country was a struggle, but I had big teams, 45, 50 girls on cross country. My last year coaching, I had 60, but I'm jumping ahead. So in my own life, things were starting to crumble a bit which is part of life. And I think had I not had this friendship in it, I would have been more willing and able to focus more on it. But I was very, very distracted and willingly so. I didn't want to think about home. So first grade for Gracie and Morgan begins and they're in the same class again. And they have this wonderful teacher, Bonnie. She knows that Gracie and Morgan are good friends. They hang together all the time. They don't always play the same activities. It's interesting. I've said this before. Gracie and Morgan were very good at parallel play. They could play for hours together. They would each do their own thing. And it didn't matter whether it was Gracie's playroom or Morgan's playroom. They found the toys they liked and played with them. Sometimes they incorporated them together, but I can remember watching them play and just being amazed at they would chatter away and talk about things while Morgan was playing with one thing and Gracie was playing with another. One of my favorite memories is it was like a little tyke's kitchen and a little tyke's tool rack, like a tool shed. So Morgan would play very much with like cars and trucks and the tool thing. And Gracie was all about the kitchen. Now, in our house, Kenny's the cook. So you would think, so I guess it logically speaking, Gracie would play with the kitchen because that's what she saw. And in Morgan's reality, Roy did all the home repairs in that beautiful home. He did amazing projects. So he was constantly using tools. So I can see where she would see that and want that. But I remember once walking in on them in that third story playroom. And they were busy away, busy away, chattering along, running some sort of little house, or maybe it was a motel or a school. It was something. And Gracie was in charge of preparing the food. 
Gracie was involved in preparing the food and Morgan was involved in like being the handyman and the maintenance person and, and the person at the hotel or the school or whatever it was that made sure everything was working. And they were chattering away, really, really lost in an activity. It was, I loved it. The one thing they would play together constantly was Polar Express. We had the whole Polar Express, everything. We had the train set. We had all of it, the movie, the books, the toys, all of it. When Morgan and Gracie were playing here, they were just swallowed up in that. At this time, Molly also began to develop some of her own friends. And she had a little friend named Hannah at preschool. And Hannah lives right nearby or lived right nearby. And so it was becoming easier now to have dual playdates where Molly would play with Hannah and Gracie would play with Morgan. And there wasn't that group of three. And Morgan was also becoming a much bigger piece of the neighborhood dynamic. She would come over a lot, spent a lot of time here without Amy. And so I remember birthday parties really picked up in first grade. And we went to a lot of them together. We went trick-or-treating in so fall of first grade, Halloween of first grade. And I remember Amy had, she was working on something and she had hit herself in the mouth really hard and she was a mess. She came trick-or-treating and Roy was upset that Morgan wasn't trick-or-treating in their neighborhood. I think they went out a bit first, but she came over and joined us because we went up on Auburn Street. We had the whole neighborhood group come. I have a wonderful picture somewhere of it. It's really sweet. But I remember this is when I started to hear from Amy a lot about how Things with Roy were falling apart with her and their marriage crumbling and falling apart isn't my story to tell. I will only share the things that happened in my time with Amy. And I won't even share all that she told me. I will just share what she asked of me because it started to become significant and I started to become very uncomfortable. As I said, she called me on vacation and she had sprained her ankle really badly. And I remember coming home and it was huge, swollen and blue. And she talked a lot about Roy insisting they do these, you know, go on walks or do these different things. And he got angry with her because she was so far behind. And according to her, she was hobbling on this sprained ankle. And of course that angered me because when you hurt, what you need is someone to acknowledge that you're hurting. And she was crying. And apparently he yelled at her or belittled her for crying. So there was that. And then the Halloween time came and we we're waiting and waiting. And she finally showed up, you know, texting again, wasn't like it is now. I couldn't just text her and say, we're on our way. I did, but it wasn't, we didn't live on our cell phones then. Landlines were still a huge piece of how we communicated. And she had really hurt herself. She could hardly function. And I told her to go sit at my house and you know take some ibuprofen and, and deal with her mouth. She was in a lot of pain. And these things started to ring alarm bells for me because I just was worried about her. And again, I'm only hearing her side of it. So this is what I'm sharing. Another thing that started happening increasingly were the boundary crossings. So my classroom at Concord High School had changed and I was upstairs now. When I was in the downstairs classroom, there was an external door right next to my class. So you could park on the street in front of Concord High School, the side street, Westbourne Road, and you could just walk up into the little parking lot, into the school and into my classroom. You didn't have to walk by the main office. The only way to get to my third floor classroom, regardless of what door you came in, was eventually you would have to go by the main office. And so you can't just walk into a high school with two giant coffee culottes with whipped cream and go to a classroom. And so I would I would get messages from my class would be interrupted. You have a visitor here, Amy, with coffee culottes. Okay, so that's nice. And up she'd come with these culottes, but it was interrupting my workday. And she just did not either seem to understand that it was utterly wrong to walk into a school building and bring a teacher a coffee culotta. Like it's, it was going to make me look bad. And it did make me look bad. I was asked several times to stop that from happening. And, and I would ask Amy, I would plead with a school secretary to please, when she comes in, tell her no, that I'm busy. I can't be bothered. 
you know, it was just incredibly difficult. I was having a very, very hard time with that level of boundary crossing. As that first grade year went on, there were many, many classroom activities. There were these, you know, reports on countries and the kids made vests and there was a big feast afterwards and all families were supposed to bring something from their child's country. And so in the fall, I started to notice an increasing amount of times that Amy was not at school activities that most other parents were at. She came to some, but there was an increasing number of times that she didn't come. And oftentimes, especially in the evenings, when the, when the activity was over, I would drive Morgan home. It wasn't out of my way necessarily, but here it is a school activity and there's no participation. This was another time, the fall leading up to the holiday season of that year and you know, coaching cross country and all of the things that I'm busy doing that I really started seeing an increase in Amy just dropping by, or I almost felt followed or stopped. I was parking my car one morning and she knew what time I went to school and she was in her car in the parking lot. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, I have a present for you. And I'm like, what? And so she gives me this shirt and I actually tried to find it and wear it for this episode. It was a pink, one of those high-tech shirts that wick away sweat, so it's thin. It was a Life is Good shirt and it had a runner on it. And I loved it, it was beautiful. It was a size large and she gave it to me because it was too big for her. <laughs> and it actually wasn't, it was a bit roomy, but not too big. And I loved it. It was a beautiful gift, but she was waiting in the school parking lot for me to, to drive in and get out of my car. And of course, it wasn't a quick drop off. It was a long conversation. And I'm wondering if we could have a play date today. And I just remember it left me feeling really uneasy. Like what, what is going on here? I will say, I know that life in her house was increasingly stressful. And I think Knowing what I know about both Amy and Roy now, I can't imagine that a marriage between those two people was easy and that life in that house was comfortable. I think it worked as long as it did or the way it did because, you know, Roy was away a lot as a pilot. You know, if you have 30 days in a month, he might be gone 20 of those days. So you don't have the daily interaction. But when he is home, he's home all the time. So, you know, it's sort of one of those all or nothing things. I submitted my sabbatical proposal in the fall of 2007 as well, and it was approved, and I was so excited. And the sabbatical proposal would take place at Gracie and Morgan School, and it was all around health and how to provide a health curriculum to elementary school students. And so it was really typical of the business I'm putting together, which is mind, body, spirit. When you're healthy as a child, you have to eat well, and you have to move around, and you have to be a good friend. And you have to have a healthy family. And what are the ways that we can be healthy and activities and all? It was a blast. And so I'll get to that. But I was in the process of applying for that. And I had a significant thing happen to me. I was at the school. It was in the winter. I would say January of first grade. And the afternoons, there was a ski program. And so half the school went skiing. So what do you do with the other half of the school? So they created activities that happened once a week on ski day. And in Gracie's class, they went to the Y and played games. It was like an extra PE time. So I'm sitting in a classroom at Kimball School. I get paged to the main office. So I go to the main office and apparently Gracie had left the classroom, gone outside, was standing outside. Several parents saw her standing out there by herself. She walked to the Y by herself, thinking that she had missed it. All the way to the Y, she was standing at busy, busy North State Street and a stranger asked her, what are you doing? And she said, I'm going to the Y to exercise. And this kind woman took her to the Y. What if the guy in the van with the puppies had seen her? Like, I still get so upset about it. I was in the building when this happened. It reads like a, you know, America's Most Wanted episode. And so 
I went right to the Y. Everybody was there at that time. Poor little Gracie looks at me. I was so upset and so distraught. She thought I was mad at her. She cried. I cried. It was horrifying. And I just remember, I actually went to the hospital. I said, I think I'm having a stroke. I don't know. And I, I had this big binding feeling in my head. And it's one of the reasons I was so trusting of them with Molly. They gave me every test imaginable. I was in that ER for like six hours. I had an EKG. I had an EEG, a brain scan. I had all of it. They basically said you had a very, very bad panic attack, which makes sense. I almost lost my child. That was my life at this time. The level of stress in my life was increasing. And the level of triangulation around Amy, my mother, and I was, was at the point where my mother was just refusing. You tell Amy, no, I am not going to post play dates. I want no part of it. And I did tell Amy that, but Amy's life was increasingly difficult. So she was needing me more and more and more as I was pulling back, pulling back, pulling back. Amy had a really, really significant surgery. And I'm not sure the timeline of this and the story I'm about to tell. I believe the surgery happened at the end of kindergarten, the spring and summer, you know, heading into first grade. So by now she's healing up. Significant surgery and it didn't go well and it didn't heal well. And this was the first time that Amy had indicated to me that she was afraid of Roy. You fill out these medical forms and such and she had put down that she did not feel safe at home. There was no follow through on this. So I look back on that now and I, you know, I just wonder, was that box really checked off? I believe that it was. I think in later years, she collected all that evidence, which is what she would do. But she had this horrifyingly slow recovery. And it was, so yeah, I think it was the spring of kindergarten heading into the summer after kindergarten. And she and I had run together quite a bit. And she, she was just all worried that our friendship would end. We wouldn't be running together anymore. And I said, well, once you can start running, we could always just go to the Y and run on side-by-side treadmills. Then I can run fast and you can run slow, but we're still next to each other. But there was no way that she could do anything. She had just such, I just ache for her still when I think back to how long it took her, her body to heal from that big incision and all that she had done in her tummy. She did say that she was well taken care of at home, but again, she was, I imagine, alone a lot of the time. I think, I think Roy took a lot of time off. During that time, she was incessantly emailing and calling me at work all the time. She was stuck home all day and I'm working a full-time job. It was awful. I'd sit down to check school email and there'd be a giant email from her paragraphs, pages and pages, you know, long, long, long. And, and if I didn't respond, she was upset. So I would use my prep period and my lunch period to respond to these emails or to talk to her on the phone. And it wasn't so much, I'm struggling, I need you. It's like, you're not here for me. I think Facebook was becoming a bit bigger then. And she saw that I went running with Dave. And so her response was, you replaced me with Dave? And in my head, I'm thinking, well, actually, I replaced Dave with you initially. You know, Dave was my person. And then you came along and then you're my person. And, and then Dave was my person. Like, it was just one of those, just such an awkward thing. And, and I said, well, I didn't replace you with anybody, but I'm still going to go running. I've been a runner for 30 years. I didn't start running meeting you. And, and this was something, again, that she really just either didn't or refused to accept and acknowledge that my life didn't start the day I met her. And that running especially was a part of my life forever. She came into my life, you know, in, the, in running. I didn't come into hers. I don't, it's so hard to explain. And it was just so unbelievably stressful. I remember the birthday party that year. So the girls would have been turning six and four. She had this, you know, tummy issue. So I set it all up in the recliner and she could just be a part of the party without really, you know, having to do much. And I know that Teresa always came to the birthday parties and actually was always a super big help. So I recall that happening as well in this aspect of the friendship. Her needs were increasing and I don't blame her for this. She's not a weak or a bad person. Let me be clear. This was just an unhealthy person functioning in a way that she felt to be normal. And I was an unhealthy person 
unwilling or unable to stand up for myself. The next thing that happened, this would have been the first grade year, Amy had become much more active in the running community and actually all of a sudden was doing running things. She could run again, was going on runs and doing things that I wasn't going at. And I remember saying, oh my gosh, you, you did this run. And, and she had a bit of a smug look about her. And at the time I really thought, oh, you're just trying to get me back because I run with Dave. It was weird. The running dynamic became a weird thing. Like she suddenly decided her running was hers. Having said that, she got pretty fit and we started doing some really long runs. We would do these Sunday runs. And I've talked about those before. This was the school year they became pretty significant. And it was on these runs that she started to share with me some outside relationships that she was developing that Roy didn't know about and that he wouldn't approve of. Again, it's not my story to tell because it involves a very, very high power local community member and business person in, in Concord in the state of New Hampshire. She wanted me to sort of cover for her sometimes. Like, can I say I'm with you when I'm really at this event or doing this or doing that? I was very, very uncomfortable with it. And so I, I said no, and she got very upset with me. This was right around the time that I came home one night and her car was parked in my driveway or along my, along my fence. And I got a phone call from Roy, asking me if I knew where she was. And I said, no, but her car is here at my house. So I don't know, maybe she met someone here. I don't know. I think I did know where she was, but I did not want to get involved. So I said, yes, her car is here, but I don't know where she is. And I didn't know the physical like location of where she was, but it was one of those times that I felt like it's not my place to interfere, not knowing that both Amy and Roy have no trouble telling people all the things that it's not their place to tell, probably Roy more than Amy. But at any rate, things were tanking for her and, and I could see it. And her, her request for help now with me were much more intense and not so much friendship-based as I need support-based. Now, again, I'm an educator. I'm a mandatory reporter. So if I suspect child abuse or neglect or anything like this, I have to report it. I do know that the amount of time Amy was spending away from home was beginning to increase. And this was difficult on Teresa because she was now, this would have been eighth grade for her, I believe, still at Runlet. You know, not an age where she should be in charge of her six-year-old sister at all. And so I started to want to pull back because I didn't want to associate myself with it. And there were times that I said those very things to Amy. You understand I'm an educator. I can't condone what you're doing as a teacher. That means I think it's okay. And that was what I would say to her when Morgan was just so distraught that she was being left alone and screaming loud enough that the neighbors could hear. I can't take part in that. A, because it's horrifying to me. And B, I, I'm an educator. So if I take part in it, then I'm supporting it. But support is what Amy needed from me most. And I'm sorry if this is rambly. I'm trying very hard to, to describe an enmeshed and unhealthy relationship. So enmeshment is when you get so involved with each other that you can't extricate yourself. And so I look at this first grade year as my year of extrication. My own life was falling apart a bit. My financial situation wasn't good. Kenny wasn't being honest. I had enough to deal with. I was unhappy in my sort of life in terms of, is this it? I moved home to live you know, a quarter mile from where I grew up and be a school teacher in the district I went to, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But at the time, it was beginning to feel negative. And then Amy's life was also spiraling. I remember it was a couple of times as well during this school year that she would share with me things going on at home that I'm not going to share here. It's not my story and not my place to share. But primarily concern she had around Roy and his treatment of her and his treatment of the girls that had her afraid and really wanting to seek legal help. And did I know anybody? And of course, this was early on into the spring. I would say maybe January, February. I didn't know anybody. 
at that time, I didn't know what to do. As this was escalating, and as Roy suddenly found out the person and people that Amy was seeing and spending time with, he was horrified and devastated and angry. I believe that she must have told him that I was a supporter of her because he became very, very unhelpful with me. Roy has no trouble taking it upon himself to share bad things other people have done and think it's okay. Not necessarily publicly, but with people that might be involved. Now, I have done this to Roy a couple of times, shared things that he's done with people in his life, and he's not liked it at all. This is where he and I, I'm realizing he and I might be alike here, but he shared with Teresa, so this is his daughter, let me be clear here, a lot of personal stuff that was going on with Amy and the people that she was seeing. Children deserve to love their parents. Children deserve to come up with their own issues. Amy's behavior was not directed at Teresa. She didn't need to know these details. It wasn't her business to worry about. Knowing all the sordid things that Roy was sharing with her about Amy, and I guess to make him look good, or his thing at the time was so that she would know the truth. She was distraught, devastated enough to call me, I believe, or maybe just email. I don't remember how we communicated, but she was a mess just a mess. And she didn't know what to do. And she didn't want to know that all this was going on. She didn't want him to tell her things. She didn't want to hear it. She, you know, I just want to live my life. I want to hang with my friends. And she really, this was when it really started to negatively affect her. And I realized I needed to pull back and I didn't quite know how to do it. Another thing that happened during this time is Amy's children are Amy's children biologically. And Roy adopted Morgan at a young age. And I remember this was a big thing and all happy and everything else. And they all now had the same last name and all of this, but they didn't adopt Teresa. And it was because they would lose her child support. And I just remember thinking, what a nasty message that is to a child. No, I'm not going to adopt you. I'll give you my name, but I'm not going to adopt you because then we don't get money every month. Again, this, this was the kind of behavior that I'm not perfect, please, by all means, you know, I'm not perfect. But the messages, messages, messages again and again to these two beautiful little girls about where they stood in the hierarchy of importance in that family was ugly. And it hurt me. It hurt me a lot. And so this was a time I really started to pull back. So we're getting into spring of 2008. And I'm, you know, getting ready and excited to do my sabbatical. This was the fall and winter of the first grade year. Less and less involvement in school activities, more and more involvement in running and timing races in the whole running community, a big piece of it that I was not involved in. Amy wanting me to cover for her when she wasn't where she was said she was going to be, me not wanting to do that at all, actually being called into the principal's office at the elementary school to ask if I knew if anything was going on because Morgan was really beginning to show signs of struggle in school. She was never a behavior problem ever, quiet, hardworking, diligent little girl, but difficulty getting to school, just morning difficulties. I remember one morning, this was in the spring, this is significant. I went to school with Gracie, dropped her off, had dropped Molly off at preschool already. And Morgan was not there. We had talked on the phone about different things. And this was, again, I was taking, driving the kids to school all the time. The number of times that year that I picked Morgan up and drove her to school, they lived two blocks from the school. Keep this in mind. During first grade was significant. And it, if it got her out of that house into school, that was great. So she didn't answer her phone and there was no Morgan. And I knew that Morgan wasn't sick. So I went to the house and I walked inside. I'm like, hello, hello. And Amy and Roy were fighting, having a huge fight. And Morgan was sitting in the room, just curled up, 
sort of sitting in a huddle position, all hunched over, playing with a toy and just sitting and listening to this nasty fight. I heard enough of it to know that the name calling and the words used were ugly, ugly, not okay with a child in the house. And so I yelled up, are you okay? Are you okay? I was yelled at, <laughs> but I, I just said, I'm going to take, I'm going to take Morgan and bring her to school. And so that was that, and that was fine. And I grabbed her and took her to school. That was when I felt like things were out of control and I was going to call social services. Not because I thought Amy or Roy were directly bad to the girls, but because the home situation was becoming unsafe and volatile. Later that day, or perhaps that week, so this was heading into spring now. So I've gone through the major blowups. I've gone through walking in and hearing the arguments. A couple of times as well, she had called me on the phone, just dialed the phone, I answer hello. And I don't hear anything, but I know it's from her. And she has put the phone on the counter and I've listened, you know, 10 minutes of a, of a horrible, horrible fight. I won't ever talk about the nature of the fights, but I was spoken to by Roy in the manner that he spoke to Amy, you know, 10 years later. I realize now the dynamics of what was going on. But at the time I was terrified, terrified of what I was hearing. And so just at the time I was ready to say, you know what, I need to, I need to go to child services or have the school do it because I don't want to, I can't be involved in this anymore. Amy called and said, would you please go to court with me? I think I'm going to get a restraining order against Roy. And that's where I'll sort of end the first grade season because I had pulled back a ton. All of our communications now were around Roy's treatment of her, her situation, her choices, her wanting out of the marriage, her not knowing what to do. I will reiterate, the two of us were on downward spirals in a parallel fashion. You know, I was struggling with my own issues that had nothing to do with her family and she was falling apart. And in my efforts to help her, in typical codependent, enmeshed adult survivor of child abuse, I enmeshed myself into her life and we became entangled in a very unhealthy way. Any way of trying to extricate from it was almost impossible. The restraining order request came in March of 2008 and that's where I'll begin episode 74, which will be called The Restraining Order. And that is intense just because, well, just because domestic violence wears a lot of hat. It was a very, very difficult thing for me to do at the time. The right thing to do, I, I believed, and I still believe now that I know so much more about the whole dynamic, that it was probably the right thing to do. I don't know. At any rate, she was my friend and I believed everything that she said for the most part. And I took her side in this. And that's where I'll end here. And that's where the next episode will start. So I'm ending the, the Amy piece of this and the, the chronology of my life at that time. I look back on those years. I'm a person, when I look back on a negative, a negative experience, it's always either nighttime or cloudy. My bad dreams and my nightmares always take place at night or on really gray, dark days. Most of my memories of those years, Molly and Gracie, Morgan and Teresa, and all the neighborhood kids, most of my memories of those things are happy. For the most part, life was happy. We had wonderful get-togethers. Was Amy high maintenance a lot of work? Yes. Did my other friends question my devotion to her? Yes. Did my other friendships suffer because of my devotion to her? Yes. But most of my memories around those years, it's sunny outside. Roy's father coming here and spending all that time in my yard and all of the time. Yes, my mother and Kenny were, were very irritated by it. I felt like I was doing the right thing. And, and my memories are sunny days. I, I got a lot from all of it. I got a lot from my friendship with Amy. I lost far more than I got, and we'll get to that in the next couple of episodes. So in choosing your friends, always put yourself first. 
make sure to ask yourself, is this friendship helpful to me? And if you have red flags, go slow. Don't jump in and be impulsive. This is what I would often do. So be good to yourself and be good to yourself in your friendships and relationships. Put yourself first sometimes. Unless it's a newborn baby or a child, they didn't ask to be here. You got to put them first always, as long as you're wearing your oxygen. (laughs) Then do something good for someone else. Do something good for your relationship that puts the relationship before you. And as always, as I fumbly bumbly end this episode, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.